Happy Monday, my little women of the world. Welcome back for another episode of Overreacting. And man, do I have a good one for you today. I love talking about this topic. Let's face it, at some point in our lives, we have had some type of vaginal infection, whether that be bacterial vaginosis, a yeast infection, maybe even a good old STD. We have all been there, yet some of us still have no idea how these things are caused except maybe the STDs, of course, and what we can do to prevent them. Today's episode is all about that as this topic is something that I get numerous texts and DMs about all the time. So here's to keeping our vaginas healthy and happy. Let's get started. First of all, Kendra, what are the most common types of vaginal infections? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Let's go over that together. Number one, I think that I hear about this all the time, and I'm shocked that this is actually not the most common vaginal infection, but here we go. Number one that I listed off, yeast infections, which are a fungal infection that causes irritation of the skin, cottage cheese-like vaginal discharge, and vaginal itching. This is also called vaginal candidus. Vaginal yeast infections affect up to three out of four women at some point in their lifetimes, many women experiencing at least two episodes on average during their lifetime. Number two on my list, but is actually the most common vaginal infection there is, I'm shocked, bacterial vaginosis or BV. It is an overgrowth of your normal vaginal bacteria, what's medically called flora, It is not an STD or STI, but can cause some very unpleasant symptoms like one does. We always have good and bad bacteria living in balance in the vaginal area. BV is what happens when the bad bacteria outgrows the good. It's also referred to as Gardnerella vaginalis, but that is a lot harder to say, so we'll just stick with BV. And BV is the most common vaginal condition in women's ages 15 to 44. I would really love to see the medical evidence on that. I I think yeast infections are so much more common, but okay, CDC, whatever you say, you have more credibility than I do. Number three on the list, this is actually newer to the world of medicine. It's, you know, recently been tested more and more over the last couple of years, and that's for ureplasma. You know, we really didn't test a lot for this. It did not a whole lot was known about it. But ureplasma is also an overgrowth of normal bacteria naturally found in both men and women's genital tracts. It's a very common infection that is mainly spread via sexual contact. However, it is not classified as an STD, but more so just as a bacterial infection as it simply is just an overgrowth of that normal flora. Ureplasma ureticulum is a genital mycoplasma that colonizes in the genital tract and then produces infection. Number four, trichomonas, good old trick. (laughs) Trick plays tricks on your vagina, let me tell you what. It is a very common sexually transmitted infection. It is caused by an infection with a parasite called trichomonas vaginalis. Although symptoms of the disease vary, most people have the parasite cannot actually tell they're infected. And trichomonas is the most common curable sexually transmitted disease or infection. In the United States alone, an estimated 3.7 million people have the infection. However, only about 30% develop any symptoms of it itself. 
Infection is more common in women than men, and older women are more likely than younger women to have been infected with this. Number five, I know we've all heard of this one, and that's chlamydia, or by slang terms, it's called the clam. A sexually transmitted infection caused by a bacteria called chlamydia trichomitis. Usually, it doesn't cause any symptoms and can easily be treated with antibiotics. However, if it is not treated early, it can spread to other parts of your body and lead to long-term health problems. And last but not least, gonorrhea, the clap, the oldest known sexually transmitted disease, and it is caused by, bear with me, okay, this word, Neisseria gonorrhea bacteria. Actually, I did a lot better on that than I thought I was going to. Gonorrhea most often affects the urethra, rectum, or throat. However, in females, gonorrhea can also affect the cervix. I don't know about you guys, but I have always been a little curious as to where it got its name from, meaning the clap. And apparently, both the infection and its slang term have been around since the 1500s, and there are many theories as to the origin of its slang terms, the clap and the drip. First, first theory that I stumbled across, the origin could be could come from Old English. The word clappen was used to describe a beating or throbbing. This could refer to the painful burning urination or swelling in the penis or vagina caused by gonorrhea. Second theory is a number of people believe that the name stems from a proposed treatment during med- medieval times called clapping which is where they would clap the penis or slam the penis between both hands on a hard surface to get rid of the discharge and pus, and thus the infection. This is the theory. This theory has gained um, popularity due to the treatment's gruesome nature. And I think that's so freaking funny. Um, I, like the mental picture I have in my head right now, that's just hysterical. The last theory that I think is probably aware it truly got its name from in the 1500s, clapier is an old French word for a brothel. Uh, the use of the clap then would have referred to the location of where the disease most easily spread, which was brothels. In French, the disease became known as clapier bubo, meaning an infection of the penis resulting from a visit to the brothel. I'm going to go with theory C, like if this were an exam, I would go with answer C. That one sounds the most reasonable to me. So what causes all of these bad boys? And I think the short answer to this question would be to group them into two categories, those that are sexually transmitted and those that are not. Those that are not are yeast infections and bacterial vaginosis. However, star, 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 having multiple sex partners and or being sexually active can have an influence on you getting one of them. This is because the vagina lives in a perfectly balanced habitat when it comes to pH. A perfect pH is what helps keep our natural flora in balance as well. When the pH of the vagina gets off, even by one point, it can allow for an overgrowth of both yeast and bacteria, sex being one of the causes of that pH disruption. Semen, feces, and saliva are typically very alkalotic opposite of acidic for those of you who didn't have to endure the torture of chemistry in school. So genital, anal, and oral intercourse can all have an effect on pH imbalance. Other things that can disrupt the pH are taking antibiotics. These drugs kill not only the bad bacteria that causes disease, but also the good bacteria. You also need to maintain a healthy, more acidic vaginal pH level. 
This is why a lot of women get a yeast infection after having taken an antibiotic. Another reason would be douching. Although it isn't advised, about 20% of women still regularly wash out their vagina with a mixture of water and vinegar, baking soda, or iodine. Douching not only increases the vaginal pH level, but also encourages the growth of harmful bacteria overall. And last but not least, menstrual periods. Menstrual blood is a little bit basic and rises the pH in the vagina itself. So when that blood flows through the vagina and is absorbed into a tampon or a pad and sits in place, it can raise the pH level of the vagina. So change your pad and tampon or and or tampon regularly to avoid this problem. Those that are caused or spread by sexual intercourse are ureplasma, trichomonas, chlamydia, and gonorrhea. However, remember, ureplasma is not considered an STD or STI as it is just an overgrowth of a bacteria that is commonly found in both men and women's genital tracts naturally. Now, what are the symptoms of them? Starting off with number one, yeast infections. They're going to cause itching and irritation of the vagina and vulva. The vulva is the, the outside. Think of like the lips, all of that sort of stuff. That's the vulva. A burning sensation, especially during intercourse or while peeing. Redness and swelling of the vulva, vaginal pain and soreness, vaginal rash, thick, white, odor-free vaginal discharge with a cottage cheese appearance. Doesn't that sound just absolutely wonderful? I would love, love that. Sign me up. <laughs> Number two, bacterial vaginosis typically presents itself with a watery, white, or gray vaginal discharge, pain, itching, or burning in the vagina, a strong fish-like odor, especially after sex burning when peeing, itching around the outside of the vagina as well. Number three, ureplasma, pretty similar to BV, except discharge is going to be green or yellow. Um, and again, you're going to have painful urination, fishy odor, and vaginal itching. Four, trichomonas, itching, burning, redness, or soreness of the genitals, just in general, doesn't have to be the vagina itself, can be all over discomfort with urination, an increase in vaginal discharge that can be clear, white, yellow, or green with an unusual fishy smell, and chlamydia. I want to note here, it's usually asymptomatic in women. This is why it is so, so, so important for you to get routinely tested for STDs because you might have it and not even know. However, the most common symptoms when symptoms are present in women are painful urination, unusual vaginal discharge, usually blood-tinged or really cloudy in appearance, maybe even rust-colored, abdominal or pelvic pain, painful intercourse, bleeding after sex, and bleeding in between periods. And lastly, gonorrhea. Again, women are usually asymptomatic or have very mild symptoms if they are present. Those include painful urination, bleeding in between periods, very cloudy vaginal discharge, and usually extremely watery as well anal itching, painful bowel movements, and painful intercourse. Now, how are all of these treated? Starting off again with the yeast infection. Usually over-the-counter antifungal creams, ointments, or suppositories with something called meconazole or clotrimazole are the most common ways to treat yeast infections. Good old monostat can take care of a yeast infection without you having to come in for a doctor's visit. These medications typically take on average one to seven days to complete treatment, but can take up to 48 hours after that last dose to fully resolve your symptoms. 
Your doctor may also prescribe a single-dose pill with fluconazole, known as Diflucan, for a lot of you that know brand names but not generic names. Um, or if you are pregnant, a vaginal cream called Turconazole may be called out for you, but you can take Monostat when you're pregnant as well. For those of you who have frequent or reoccurring yeast infections, an extended prophylactic treatment regimen may be prescribed by your doctor. Diabetics or those on steroidal medications also have a lot of yeast infections. This is because diabetics constantly are peeing out sugar in their urine, which yeast loves. And steroid medications cause your immune system to weaken and can allow for infections to sneak their way in, even if they're a very mild infection, such as like yeast infection. Number two, bacterial vaginosis. I don't know who told the people of the world that when they have BV, they don't have to have antibiotics that they can cure it on their own. Not true. Anytime you have a bacterial infection, whether that's a UTI, strep throat, um, respiratory infection, whatever, no, you're never going to get better unless you take antibiotics and you're probably going to make yourself worse. So, Antibiotics are needed to cure bacterial vaginosis as it is an overgrowth of bacteria. That's what antibiotics are used for, as the antibiotics kill off any excess bacteria. However, antibiotics unfortunately don't just target the bad bacteria, they target all kinds of bacteria, including the good, which can allow for a yeast infection to occur and digestive problems to arise. Always a good idea to take probiotics along with antibiotics to prevent either of these issues. The most common treatment for BV is flagyl or metronidazole is its medical name. It's an oral medication that you take for seven days and absolutely by no means can you drink alcohol while being on this medication unless you want to be projectile vomiting the entire time like you have alcohol poisoning <laughs> and not get the benefits of the medication. Metronidazole also comes in a vaginal gel form. You typically place it in the vagina at bedtime for five to seven nights. Clindamycin vaginal cream or clindamycin oral tablets can also be used but are not as common or effective in my opinion. Number three, urine plasma. Also requires an antibiotic to clear up the overgrowth of the bacteria. Doxycycline is the preferred treatment regimen but the downside to this medica medication is that it is very very harsh on one's GI system. A lot of people, especially if they don't take it with food, have nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, bloating, and gas. It's also recommended that both sexual partners get treated, and let me explain why. If one sexual partner has an overgrowth of their bacteria, having intercourse with another person can cause the overgrowth to, quote-unquote, hop ship and be passed to that other partner. If left untreated, very unpleasant symptoms can arise in both partners. Also, if only one partner is treated and the other isn't, the moment you guys have intercourse again, the overgrowth can just be passed right back. A lot of women who test positive for bacterial vaginosis also have ureplasma as well because they're the same concept. It's an overgrowth of natural bacteria. If you have one, you probably have the other. Number four, trichomonas. Trick is also treated with metronidazole, just like BV. However, a higher dose and a shorter course are used. A medication called tenidazole can also be prescribed. Usually, you take four tablets or two grams all at once of the metronidazole. And if you take the tenidazole, it's four tablets with breakfast for two days if you take that one. You and your partner both need treatment and need to abstain from intercourse at least one week after both of you have taken your medication 
or preferably until you come in and get retested in one month's time after treatment. It's called test of cure. That's to make sure that one, it's definitely cleared and you're all good to go, um, or you're not. <laughs> we need to treat you again. Um, what I, I always explain with the waiting to have intercourse thing. For example, let's say you took your treatment on Wednesday, but your partner didn't get around to taking their treatment until Monday. You both would need to wait one week to have sex a week after Monday. The last person to take their treatment, it's a week from that day, okay? Not a week from like when you get diagnosed. No, there's so much confusion about that and I don't understand. Also, I don't know why, especially if this is like your current boyfriend, you've been together for a while and all of a sudden there's an STD in the picture that doesn't spark some red flags in your brain, honey bun. I think that should, <laughs> especially if you've gotten an STD test before the two of you were together and it was negative. So that, that should tell you something right there. Number five, chlamydia. It is treated with a one-time dose of azithromycin. Usually comes with two pills or one gram that you take by mouth for one dose. One gram of azithromycin, also called a Z-Pack. Um, the dosing is a little bit different there, but it's all the same medication. Like trick, you and your partner both need to have treatment and should abstain from intercourse until one week after both of you have taken your treatment. If left untreated, it can progress to what's called pelvic inflammatory disease or can cause fertility issues in women. If pregnant patients are not treated, it can be passed to the baby during delivery and cause blindness. If any soon-to-be mamas are listening to this, get that erythromycin eye ointment on your babies. Save their eyes. This is what it's for. I hate when moms refuse this. Like, why? It's not going to hurt anything. It's only going to do good. I don't, I don't understand. But whatever. It's your baby. Their eyeballs. Number six, gonorrhea. A little bit different than others as this one requires an oral antibiotic, azithromycin, just like the chlamydia, but you also have to come in for an antibiotic injection called rocephin. Girl, let me tell you, rocephin hurts like a biatch. She is thick. T-H-I-C-C, thick. We usually have to reconstitute it, which usually just means we mix it with lidocaine just so that it's tolerable for you. Again, ladies, this can cause blindness in newborn babies. Get that eye ointment on their sweet little eyes ASAP after delivery. Do not, do not refuse that medication. Also, side note, I want to go on a little tangent about this to that. The previous neonatal nurse in me wants to bring this up, and I think this is a great, great stage to bring this up. Don't refuse any of those medications offered post-delivery to a baby. In fact, they all have a fucking purpose and are heavily backed by decades, if not hundreds of years of medical research. I don't understand why people refuse them. They think it's a conspiracy theory. Science and medicine are not a conspiracy theory. They're not. I'm sorry. Disease is not a conspiracy theory. <laughs> Whatever. The anatomy and physiology of a body is not a conspiracy theory. It's just known facts. Vaccinate your child. You're going to be offered hepatitis B vaccine immediately after delivery. We usually give it within the first 12 hours of life for it to be beneficial. You will have to give your baby this vaccination at some point in order for your kid to go to public schools. Why not give it at its 
peak time for it to be most effective, which is in the first 12 hours of life. Why wait until they're five years old and we'll probably have to have numerous booster shots throughout their life? Again, I'm not critiquing your parenting skills, but at the same time, I am. So allow them to get that vitamin K shot. Probably out of all of these that I'm going over, get this one over anything. Babies do not have any clotting factors when they are born, which means they don't have the parts of their blood that helps their blood to clot if they were to get a cut, um, get a bruise. like They just profusely bleed because they don't have the clotting stuff that we have that, that comes with time. This puts them at a very high risk for having a brain bleed if they don't have vitamin K in their system. Think of baby just barely hits the side of their isolate with their head. They don't have vitamin K in their system. That could be a massive brain bleed and easily a big one, depending on how hard they hit their head. I, I, out of all of these, I really don't understand that one. That is synthetically the most natural one we give them and the most beneficial. And then last but not least, get that fucking eye ointment. You never know when your baby daddy might be running around on you, even if your STD testing has been clean up until that 28th week of pregnancy, which is the last time we're going to test for those STDs. A lot of a lot of things can happen between 28 weeks and 40 weeks when you deliver. Protect that little baby who is innocent in all of this at all costs and save their eyes, okay? To end things here, I'm going to give a little free medical advice for all of you guys because I get this question all the time. What can I do to keep myself from getting a vaginal infection or what can I do to keep myself from having reoccurrent ones? Number one, don't have sex. I'm just kidding, but not really. A little more reasonable advisement would be to use protection during intercourse, especially with a new partner. Number two, use the bathroom immediately after intercourse. Peeing not only allows your urinary tract to be rinsed out from the act, but also the outer vaginal area decreases your chances of yeast and bacterial vaginosis. However, unfortunately, does not protect against STD and STIs. How awesome would that be, though? Just run and go pee after sleeping with somebody with chlamydia. (laughs) Done. Resolved. (laughs) Number three, start taking a daily women's probiotic. A general probiotic is fine too, but a women's one specifically contains the good bacteria needed for the vaginal area. It also contains good bacteria for the GI tract as well. So overall, it's just a good probiotic that targets women. Culturel actually has a really good one and I highly recommend it. It's, it just says women's daily probiotic and it's pink. You'll see it. It's great. It's kind of expensive, but I used to have yeast infections a lot and haven't had one since I started taking this and doing these other methods I'm about to go over. If you don't want to take a probiotic or aren't good about remembering to take pills, try and incorporate more yogurt into your diet as it naturally contains these probiotics. Number four, drink lots and lots of water daily. This goes back to what I was saying about peeing after intercourse. The more you're peeing, the more your vaginal area is being rinsed off with your urine, which is sterile, by the way. Better yet, when you are very hydrated, your urine is essentially water. That is a great way for getting unwanted guests out of our women's women-only organisms habitat. 
Number five, ditch the underwear. I mean it. Start going commando, especially lose the thongs. It is the interstate highway from your asshole to your vagina. Bacteria can just walk their happy little selves down the roadway and stroll on into unwelcome territory. Most underwear these days are not even made of cotton either, which is the only breathable fabric there is. Heat and moisture get trapped in the vaginal area, which bacteria and yeast love. If you can't stand not wearing underwear, then at least sleep without them on. Give your girlfriend a chance to breathe at some point. She needs it. We all do. Number six, ditch the douches and scented vaginal washes. Use either just plain body soap or unscented vaginal washes like Summer's Eve, Vagisil, etc. All of them make ones that are scented and they make some without scents. Use the one without scents. Your cookie was not meant to smell like a cookie. Don't wash it with soap or spray it with products that smell like cookies, okay? Number seven, change out of leggings, swimwear, or damp clothing as soon as possible. Breathability and moisture trap in there, my friends, and don't do it. That kind of wraps up what we're talking about today. If you have any questions or concerns for me, my DMs are always open. You're welcome to text me as well. I never, ever, ever care or am bothered by getting a message from you. I will always help you. It's what I'm here for. So take advantage of me, please. (laughs) Until next time, my friends, we'll talk in two weeks. Have a great two weeks. Happy Monday. Goodbye.